Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, if Russia invades Ukraine, what would happen to natural gas supplies to Europe? And why the answer to that question weighs heavily upon diplomatic efforts to avoid war. It's highly unlikely that either side will want to disrupt the flow of natural gas. Both sides have got too much to lose from doing that. Russia itself is interested in preserving this trade relationship. It's not going to risk having its business crash because of its geopolitical interests. Later in the show, the Beijing Winter Olympics are the first games to use 100% artificial snow. What does this mean for the athletes competing on the fake snow and also for the environment around the Olympic venue? They are using between 4 to 10% of the available water in the region. I'm Gemma Ware in London. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. You are, of course, listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. NATO is alarmed about Russia's military buildup on Ukraine's borders. Russian forces at the ready near the Ukrainian border. Russia has been moving thousands of its troops, armor and artillery to the borders of Ukraine. Urgent diplomatic efforts are underway to avert a Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Emmanuel Macron has flown to Moscow for talks with Vladimir Putin. German relations where today's meeting at the White House is part of a diplomatic sprint to stave off a Russian invasion of Ukraine. The U.S., which is a staunch ally of Ukraine, warned earlier this week that Russia could invade any day now. Ukraine downplayed the apocalyptic predictions and insisted it was ready for any development. Ukraine has pushed back at the doomsday predictions, telling its citizens not to believe in apocalyptic assessments. Russia continues to deny that it's planning to invade Ukraine, but it's made a list of security demands, among them assurances from the West that NATO won't try to extend its sphere of influence any farther east. Lurking behind this political and security posturing is the issue of natural gas. Russia supplies Europe with around a third of its natural gas direct through pipelines, some of which pass directly through Ukraine. The reliance on Russian natural gas poses some very difficult questions for Europe's leaders. Are they willing to impose sanctions on Russia if Putin does decide to invade Ukraine? Would this cause Russia to stop sending natural gas to Europe? And what happens then? For this episode, I've been exploring the role natural gas plays in the Ukraine crisis with the help of two experts in the geopolitics of energy. First off, I wanted to know how did Europe become so reliant on Russian natural gas? There's a very long-standing relationship. And of course, it has also survived the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. This is Mike Bradshaw. He's a professor of global energy at Warwick Business School in the UK and co-director of the UK Energy Research Centre. A few years ago, Mike wrote a book on the geopolitics of natural gas, and I asked him to explain when this gas relationship between Russia and Europe first began. The precise date is 1968, so it goes back a long way. And that is when the Soviet Union reached agreement with Austria to deliver natural gas um, by pipeline. And that natural gas was already being supplied to countries in what we then called Eastern Europe. So it was the extension of that into what was then Western Europe. And, And so it In 1968, it started and gathered pace through the 70s and 80s. And and basically, there was an interdependence created whereby uh, the Soviet Union had discovered large reserves of oil and gas in West Siberia, a long way from Europe, and wanted to develop those resources and export them. 
It was around this time in the early 1970s that the energy crisis began, which led to oil shortages and sky-high petrol prices. And Europe saw natural gas as a means of diversifying away from oil in particular, and there was growing demand and interest in, in natural gas. The problem was that the Soviet Union lacked the capital and technology to build the pipelines to get the gas to European markets. What eventually emerged was a large-scale barter agreement between the Soviet Union and, and European countries uh, in Northwest Europe, um, whereby Europe would supply the capital to purchase technology and pipe, large diameter pipe, which the Soviet Union would then use to build the pipelines. And this was a kind of a win-win for Europe because those supplies of pipelines and technology were keeping European business order books full, which was a good thing. Uh, the idea was then the pipelines would be built, uh, the Gas would be delivered and the delivery of the gas would pay off the credits which had been provided to by the pipelines and the technology. There was no actual exchange of money, though, because the Soviet Union didn't have the money. That was the problem. Um, and some of the pipelines we're discussing today were pipelines that originated from that the pipe for gas deal, which was extended through into the 1980s. This Russia-Europe gas relationship has weathered a number of geopolitical crises over the past 50 years. Not least of which, that it, when it first started in 68, it was in, against the backdrop of the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. Um, but more significantly, um, 1979, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And then in the early 1980s, martial law was declared in Poland. And at this point in time, um, Ronald Reagan and the US government fell out with Europe over the supply of technology and pipeline to the Soviet Union. This was one thing that actually Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan disagreed on. Margaret Thatcher wanted to continue to supply um, the Soviet Union. How did the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and the end of the Soviet Union change the dynamic? I think one of the ways it, it did was it changed the political geography in important ways. Um, because if you think about the situation that existed in the 70s and 80s, um, many of what we see as independent states today, places like Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, the Baltic states, were, of course, part of the Soviet Union. But equally, the states in Central Europe were part of, uh, of the Warsaw Pact, an alliance between Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. So there wasn't a concern on the part of Moscow that the gas was traveling through these countries to get to Western Europe. There was no transit risk, as we call it. But with the collapse of the Soviet Union, these states emerged as independent states. And some of them went in a very different way. In the Baltic states and Central European states joined the European Union. Obviously, Ukraine became an independent state, as did Belarus and Moldova. And this introduced the challenge of what we might call transit insecurity, that the gas pipelines now crossed independent states that had to be paid for that transit, but also became actors in their own right. And of course, what was happening in the European Union also had great impact on the nature of the relationship. And in the European Union, there was a process of promoting competition and liberalisation and privatisation of the energy sector. That meant it was no longer a state-to-state -state relationship. It was a complex relationship with many players. And on the Russian side of the equation, the Ministry of Oil and Gas was broken up and out of this emerged Gazprom. Today, Gazprom is majority controlled by the Russian government and it's got a monopoly on the Russian gas that goes into Europe by pipeline. So how reliant is Europe on Russian gas today? It depends on what you mean by Europe. And that's not just in relation to Brexit, but also whether or not you include Turkey. There are two pipelines connecting supplies to Turkey, the Blue Stream pipeline and Turkstream. And they're competing for the same supply. So if you go back to 2019, the last normal year, including Turkey, it was 40%. 
If you exclude Turkey, then it was 35%. Russia also supplies some gas to Europe in the form of LNG, or liquefied natural gas. This is gas that's cooled down to minus 162 degrees Celsius until it becomes liquid. It's then put into a tanker and transported around the world via sea before it's reconverted back into gas that can be piped on to its destination. In recent years, there's also been the emergence of supplies of liquefied natural gas from projects on the Yamal Peninsula in the Arctic supplied by Novatech, a private company. And they add about another 4% to the European market, not including Turkey's. Of course, not all of Europe's gas comes from Russia. There is domestic production too, though Europe hasn't experienced the same shale gas revolution from fracking that's taken place in North America. Norway, which, like the UK, is not a member of the European Union, is an important European supplier. The UK is a producer, of course, but our production has been falling. It's it's plateaued of late, but will continue to fall. The same for the Dutch. The Dutch have been significant producers, but they've had Big issues are with with earthquakes in the Groningen fields and are looking to severely reduce production. Same with Denmark, they've seen production fall. So I think the backdrop in Europe is one of declining domestic production. As a result of this falling domestic production, Europe's become more reliant on gas imports. So where are they coming from? Well, Algeria and to a lesser extent Libya via pipelines that cross the Mediterranean and Azerbaijan via a new Trans-Adriatic pipeline which opened in 2020, bringing gas across Greece and Albania, mainly into Italy. But to meet its demand, Europe also needs to import LNG or that liquefied natural gas. Qatar has historically been the major supplier of natural gas, although most recently the United States has emerged as a major player. There are other historical suppliers in places like Nigeria, and some of these can be fairly far-flung. In recent weeks, Shell has imported deliveries of LNG from Peru into their import terminal in Wales. And there's even talk of LNG cargoes coming from Australia. But that's only possible when the prices are very high. Are some European countries more reliant on Russian gas than others? Yes, but it's a relationship you need to sort of think in terms of two questions. Firstly, how important is natural gas in the national energy mix? You know, the Dutch and and the British are unusual. In both instances, it's well over 30% of the total energy mix. Then how important is Russia as a supplier of gas? And some countries are 100% reliant on Russian supplies. Austria, Finland, Lithuania uh, are the three 100% reliant. But in Finland, natural gas is only 3% of consumption. It doesn't really matter. It's those countries which are reliant on natural gas and have a high level of dependence and actually have high volumes. And that's where you get countries like Germany, Poland, Italy as being the ones perhaps most vulnerable to interruption of supply. Germany. Europe's largest economy is in the process of closing its last few nuclear power stations. It's also committed to phasing out coal power by 2038. It's planning a longer-term shift to renewables, but in the meantime, gas remains very important. And so Germany's natural gas relationship with Russia is central to the flurry of diplomacy trying to avert war in Ukraine. And a big part of the reason for that is Nord Stream, a network of pipelines pumping Russian gas directly under the Baltic Sea to northern Germany. It's become a symbol of how Russia is uh, using natural gas to play out and the, the European states against each other and to divide European Union. This is Anastasia Shapochkina. She's a politics lecturer at Sciences Po University in Paris, France. I am American of Ukrainian origin, so I was born and grew up in Ukraine and uh, immigrated to the US as a teenager and now I live in France. 
Anastasia worked in the energy industry for about a decade, most recently at the French energy giant EDF. Alongside teaching at Sciences Po, she's now also the director of Eastern Circles, a think tank focused on the links between business and politics in post-Soviet countries. I asked her to give me a bit of the history of Nord Stream. It was a project which um, was conceived in the early 2000s. So from Europe, the interest was to build a direct pipeline uh, of gas supplies with Russia, and which would go to the biggest European economy in Germany. So it was German interest, German commercial interest, which was driving this. The, the idea, of course, was to maximize energy security by cutting out intermediary countries like Ukraine or eventually Belarus. A big champion of the Nord Stream pipelines is Gerhard Schröder, the former Chancellor of Germany, who hails from the same SPD party as Germany's newly elected leader, Olaf Scholz. Soon after leaving office in 2005, Schröder became chairman of the Shareholders Committee at Nord Stream AG, the consortium which runs Nord Stream. Nord Stream 1 opened in 2011, and Gazprom is its majority shareholder. Plans for Nord Stream 2, a second set of pipelines along the same route, started in earnest a few years later. Schroeder is president of the administrative board of Nord Stream 2. Construction of Nord Stream 2 began in 2018 and finished late last year. But no gas is flowing through it yet. Its launch has been delayed by regulatory and political hurdles. And the threat of war in Ukraine has made its future even more uncertain. The difficulty is that uh, it not just brings directly gas from Russia to Germany, but it also goes around other countries which used to be uh, transit countries which are not Ukraine and which are in the European Union, like for example, Poland, right, whose pipelines remain originally unconnected to Nord Stream 2. Now, back in 2015, Ukraine actually decided to stop importing Russian gas directly for its domestic consumption amid rising political tensions following the Russian annexation of Crimea. But Ukraine and Poland still receive transit fees from the Russian gas that travels across their territory through existing pipelines into Western Europe. According to the think tank, the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, last year, 22% of the gas that Russia delivered to Europe, including Turkey, passed through Ukraine. Anastasia says that if Nord Stream 2 comes online, the extra volume it would add to Nord Stream 1 would be enough to replace the gas transiting through Ukraine to the rest of Europe. Because this is not the only pipelines which supply uh, gas to Europe, including Russian gas. And so uh, adding these two pipelines allows to cut out Ukrainian gas. That could mean a big financial hit for the countries that usually rely on transit fees. According to a recent assessment by the International Monetary Fund, over the past five years, Ukraine received an average of just over 2.5 billion US dollars a year in transit fees from Russian gas. If Nord Stream 2 comes online, that could go down to 1.2 billion US dollars a year. Alongside these high-stakes economic interests, there's a contrasting geopolitical agenda running in parallel, particularly for countries like Poland and Ukraine. They have very difficult relationship with Russia historically, right? So at the same time, you will have this kind of desire to uh, get independent from Russia, hence Ukraine's decision to uh, no longer import uh, gas directly from Russia. Nord Stream 2 also causes tensions within the European Union between countries which take a more pro- or anti-Russian stance. And it's faced fierce opposition from the United States. The US is a very important ally of Ukraine strategically and militarily. Hence this positioning of US on Nord Stream 2. Under the Trump administration, the US imposed sanctions on some of the companies involved in the construction of Nord Stream 2. These were then waived by the new Biden administration in May 2021. 
A month later, President Joe Biden met President Vladimir Putin in Geneva. It's the first meeting between the two men since Joe Biden began his presidency, and both leaders have said they hope their talks can lead to more stable and predictable relations. Very, very quickly afterwards, we learn that Nord Stream 2 has been given a green light. And, and there was a real hope that it was going to, to go on. At the same time, Germany agreed to work with the US to secure the future of gas transit through Ukraine and to stand up against Russian attempts to use energy as a weapon. Then October comes, a new military build-up happens along the border with Ukraine and Nord Stream 2 project is again stalled. Because, of course, among all of the different levers of pressure uh, on Russia, this is an important lever. As the flurry of diplomacy trying to avoid war in Ukraine continues, so too do questions on what would actually happen to gas supplies if Russia decides to invade. I put that question to Mike Bradshaw. The consensus seems to be that it is highly unlikely that either side will want to disrupt the flow of natural gas. And the reason is simply both sides have got too much to lose from doing that. On on the Russia's side, Russia at the moment is filling its contractual obligations, those existing long-term contracts to supply gas. It's not doing any more than that, um, but it doesn't want to break those contracts. Breaking those contracts would result in financial, legal and reputational damage. Russia also needs the money. I mean, Gazprom needs the money more than the Russian government. You know, it is highly reliant on that income to be able to supply gas at a lower price to domestic consumers. It's not an inconsequential amount of income to the Russian government either. Uh, On the European side, if they place sanctions that actually stop the flow, then they may be sanctions on a payment system that meant that that Gazprom couldn't be paid. That would make a bad situation even worse. The price is already high because markets are jittery. Um, The analysis suggests it would result in physical shortages eventually and possibly power cuts. So it would be an own goal in that sense. Sanctions are often seen as a double-edged sword. They harm the countries that impose them as much as the intended target of the sanctions. Russia does have a history of turning off its gas supplies to Europe. In 2009, Russia cut gas supplies to Ukraine amid a payment dispute. This led gas flows to southeastern Europe being shut off for a couple of weeks in early January. More than a dozen countries scrambling to cope. Tens of thousands of people, mostly in Bulgaria, are without gas for heating. Is there anything different about the situation now that wasn't the case back then? So the stakes perhaps are higher because this is really about issues of national sovereignty, right to self-determination, and actually also because Russia has you know, been making demands of, of Europe in terms of creating a security architecture that makes it feel comfortable. So I think this is a much bigger dispute. This is not about not paying your gas bills. But I think the biggest difference is that the context within which it's happening um, of very tight global gas market and also that storage in Europe is at historically low levels, you know. So we've got far less wiggle room, if you like. And there have been interruptions to supply both pipeline and LNG. But more than that, the LNG market has been really tight because Asian demand has been significant, in part driven by climate change imperatives to move away from coal. They move away from coal and they increase consumption of gas. You see that in China. And that means if there are situations where supply cannot keep up with demand, we have very high prices and we essentially have a bidding war. While Asia usually buys its LNG via long-term contracts, Europe relies on the spot markets to buy its LNG. 
these spot markets are where consignments of gas are traded immediately, meaning they go to the highest bidder. So it's against that backdrop of a very tight market that makes it very difficult to think about how Europe could actually get alternative sources of supply quickly enough. We really have got to get through the winter heating season, which really takes us to late March, April. And we've really got to hope that the weather doesn't take a turn for the worse because of the the importance of, of the heating demand. Gas prices in Europe are already at record highs and many governments have brought in emergency financial measures in the past few months to help households with their bills. But while European homes and businesses may rely on Russian gas to keep the heating on and factories operating, as Mike Bradshaw says, Russia also relies on the revenues it gets from selling gas to these European customers. Russia does have other markets for its gas, though. Here's Anastasia again. It exports some LNG, which is still negligent compared to its um, conventional uh, gas exports. Gazprom also, of course, exports to Asia, especially since the launch of the Power of Siberia pipeline directly to China. The Power of Siberia pipeline, which opened in 2019, takes gas from eastern Russia into the northeast of China. In general, this pivot to Asia was something that Gazprom and Russian government have tried to do since the early 2000s. The um, important thing to understand is that this is part of the Russian energy strategy from all along, so to say, over the last 20 years, to diversify its market, and which is absolutely normal. It's also about the use of different natural gas fields. The natural gas fields from which the gas would go to China are different and they're located in different locations and they are not valorized with the European experts. The two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Chinese President Xi Jinping has met with his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin in Beijing. On the 4th of February, hours before the opening ceremony of the Beijing Winter Olympics, Vladimir Putin met Xi Jinping. President Xi said the meeting will inject more vitality into China-Russia relations. Alongside this presidential meeting, Gazprom and the state-owned China National Petroleum Corporation signed a 30-year contract to supply more Russian gas to China via a new pipeline. So if the situation comes to a head with, with the Ukraine crisis and gas is cut off between Russia and Europe, what would the gas that is going to Europe now, where would it go? What would Russia do with it and what are its options? maybe just build additional infrastructure to be able to increase its exports to China. But that would take time, right? This infrastructure is not built overnight. Increase its LNG exports would be another uh, thing to Asia, right? Because now Russia has been exporting LNG to Asia, especially Japan and South Korea, since it started LNG projects 20 years ago. But uh, these volumes have remained very small. Now Russia is obviously developing big LNG projects, Yamal LNG, Arctic 2, which are promising to increase these volumes uh, very, very much. But the North uh, Maritime route, uh, which would be required so through the Arctic Ocean, so say, and the different North Seas in Russia to export all of this uh, gas, uh, it's open for trade only six months a year so far. So global warming is very welcome, of course, there, because that would help solve this problem. So far, it's being solved with icebreakers. So big ships which break the ice, they're very difficult, therefore, to export, but possible. So in the short term, and short term, I mean several years or up to 10 years, it's hard to just reroute these uh, extra supplies or store them, you know, store them for how long. Therefore, this scenario that Russia is just going to do something else with these supplies is, to me, doesn't look very probabilistic. Europe and the US have been working behind the scenes for weeks to line up alternative sources of gas, including LNG, if a Russian invasion of Ukraine disrupts supply. 
Anastasia thinks that gas supplies to Europe are unlikely to be completely cut off should Russia invade Ukraine. But she says the big open question is how exactly European leaders will react in that scenario. It looks like it, it should be unacceptable to the Europeans in case of food invasion, but we do not know how unacceptable or acceptable things are going to actually be because if Europe is dependent you know, between 35 and 40% of its gas imports on Russia, that's important. So that's the whole question of the acceptability, the factor of energy economic interdependence between Russia and Europe can uh, be a containment factor on the conflict uh, in Ukraine. This is the optimistic scenario, let's put it this way, because faced with the threat of the European tough stance uh, and therefore refusal, for example, of buying uh, you know, Russian gas, then of course for Russia it is very, very difficult. What it looks more probable is that Russia will be either contained by the factor that it relies on the European Union for this trade, that the European Union needs its gas, and therefore Russia itself is interested in preserving this trade relationship. It's not going to risk having its business crushed because of its geopolitical interests. Some European leaders may, however, decide that they cannot risk power cuts. And that would mean gas might be left out of any sanctions on Russia if its troops do invade Ukraine. Then we could envision the scenario when Russia could be basically allowed, because of the energy security of Europe, to invade all it wants and still trade with Europe and even use the Ukrainian gas system to increase potentially its exports of gas volumes to Europe. The future of Nord Stream 2 hangs in the balance as well. At a meeting between Biden and the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz on the 7th of February in Washington, Biden made his position very clear. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again. Then uh, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. But Schultz refused to commit to doing the same, only that Germany would act together with the US and other allies to respond in the case of an invasion. How exactly the European Union would respond and with what kinds of sanctions remains very much up for discussion, particularly as all 27 EU member states must agree before levying new sanctions on Russia. One thing to keep in mind, though, Anastasia says, is that regardless of changes in government, with Olaf Scholz replacing long-term Chancellor Angela Merkel, Germany's energy policy hasn't really changed. The energy security is driving foreign policy and uh, the position of Germany, which is still you know, far enough removed from Ukraine, not to perceive uh, the volatile situation in Ukraine as a threat to its own security in general. Therefore, logically, Germany will place its own energy security before uh, someone else's physical security. These are some of the questions facing Europe's leaders in the days and weeks ahead as Russian troops amass on Ukraine's borders. But what about longer term? I asked Mike Bradshaw how much Europe might depend on natural gas in the future, and in particular, gas from Russia. Well, much of this depends on wider European Union energy policy and climate policy. I mean, the, the general uh, direction of travel is to decarbonise the energy system and move away from fossil fuels. But, you know, in that merit order, getting rid of coal is a priority. And, and one of the problems with that is you become more reliant on natural gas. Then the question becomes, what role is natural gas going to play in the transition to a low carbon future? And much discussion about you know, the idea of gas as a transition fuel, which is probably not really very viable in a European context. It may be in the case of somewhere like China. Um, but I think in Europe, gas has been there so long and is part of the problem rather than part of the solution. 
But of course, the gas industry itself has got a vision of its future. And that is not to sort of pack up the bags and go home. They want to keep their gas networks in the money. So what they are talking up is hydrogen. Um, and in particular, blue hydrogen, which actually decarbonizes natural gas. But you need carbon capture and storage because CO2 is a byproduct of the production of blue hydrogen. Uh, so there is a huge amount of uncertainty about the role of natural gas. But the choices facing Europe here are not simple. In a situation where Europe is continuing to have to import a lot of gas, the economic reality is that Russia is the cheapest source of pipeline gas into Europe. Equally, pipeline gas is cheaper and more environmentally friendly than liquefied natural gas. Liquefied natural gas is more expensive in general and has a higher carbon intensity. So as we become more sensitive to the carbon intensity of the fossil fuels we consume, that's an extra wriggle, if you like, that, that Russia is well aware that it's got a, a lower carbon source of supply. In late December, the EU published a draft document known as a taxonomy, setting out the rules for future green energy investment in Europe. It's essentially a checklist of, of what sectors and activities can be considered green in the context of, of the European Union's Green Deal and Fit for 55 and all the other initiatives it has going on. And the controversy has been the fact that both nuclear and natural gas have been included. Environmental activists are unhappy to certainly see natural gas there. A big debate around the role of nuclear, of course, in Europe, with, with Germany clearly in one position um, and other countries looking to maintain, if not develop, further nuclear. Longer term, if you're looking far ahead into the future, does this move away from fossil fuels? Does it reduce the political leverage that Russia and, and Europe can kind of play on each other there in any future political scenarios and tensions in, over Ukraine? I think ultimately it does. I, I do think that, you know, it it should focus minds. There's been a lot of debate, and I think some people erroneously saying the problems are caused by the low-carbon transition. That's not the case. This really is a fossil fuel crisis to do with simple factors of supply and demand. The solution longer term is to reduce your reliance on fossil fuels and the associated volatility and geopolitical risks that they come with. Um, the problem is actually filling the gap that's created when you start to reduce your demand for fossil fuels. And if you can't develop the low carbon alternatives quickly enough, how do you fill that gap? And so maybe it is, it's doubling down um, on the acceleration of the deployment of, of clean energy solutions. But maybe there needs to be a bit of realism as well that actually managing that gap for the moment will require natural gas to some degree. Um, so hopefully calmer minds will prevail and we won't have a conflict in Ukraine and we can all reflect on, on lessons learned and it should accelerate our ambition to decarbonise. You've been listening to Mike Bradshaw and Anastasia Shaproshkina there. Stay tuned to the conversation for more analysis by experts on the evolving crisis in Ukraine. For our next story, we're talking Winter Olympics. Have you been watching it all, Gemma? I have. I'm a massive Olympics fan, so I've been watching some curling, some speed skating, and actually some mogul skiing, which looked terrifying. How about you? I am. I'm a big skier and snowboarder, so I've been keeping track of those events. And it's been particularly interesting because 100% of the snow the athletes are competing on is actually artificial. And that's a first for any Winter Olympics. So what does this mean for the athletes and also for the environment? 
To find answers to these questions, I've been talking to an expert who just published some new research on these very questions. My name is Dr. Maddie Orr. I am a sport ecologist, which is a person who studies climate change and sport at Loughborough University in London in the UK. Let's set the scene. Can you take me back to, say, the first Winter Olympics, 1924, Chamonix in the French Alps? What did those Olympics look like and kind of how did the climate factor into that? Or was it even a factor when they started planning those Olympics? Yeah, so Chamonix 1924 would have looked a lot different to what we see today. Um, You would have had natural snow on the mountain for skiing and for Nordic. You would have seen outdoor skating, which we haven't had for ages. Um, You would have seen natural tracks for sledding sports, which is not to say there was naturally a bunch of ice on a mountain that they sled down. Uh, It's to say that they would construct a track, flood it with water, and it wouldn't be supported by additional Um, cooling technologies, which is obviously quite different than what we're starting to see now. We've had a couple of Olympics that in the past have uh, used significant amounts of artificial snow. In Sochi, it was about 80%. In Pyeongchang, closer to 90%. And now we're going into Beijing and facing 100% artificial snow use, which is uh, unprecedented. These places are presumably all cold, But is climate change affecting how much snow some of these places are getting? Yeah. So in the case of the last few Olympics, actually, they were poorly chosen locations for their natural conditions in the sense that climate change obviously has increased the temperatures in Beijing, but not significantly enough that it's substantially different than it was 10 years ago, for example. We've known that this was going to be reliant on artificial snow because Beijing is just not that's snowy. <laughs> that's the truth. And in that case, snowmaking is a great kind of stopgap solution because you can produce snow. You can't produce cold temperature. Okay. Uh, how does one go about making fake snow? The production of fake snow has to do with essentially air and water being pushed through a fan system um, and blasted kind of out. And it typically is sustained with a little bit of chemical additives that help it to bond together. So essentially, it allows the ice crystals to bond together a little bit easier than they would otherwise. But it's a complicated technical solution that is being sustained with a whole lot of energy and 49 million gallons of water. So we've got a ton of water. We've got some chemical additives to make it easier to make quality snow, I imagine. And you've got this whole infrastructure to go and push this around, make it take a hill, make it ski hill. So there's got to be some environmental impacts to this, right? What are What's the research showing on this? And has Beijing done anything to kind of mitigate these things? Yeah, so there's two sides to this question. The first one is, what happens when we pull that much water out of the system? So to collect that much water, they are using mostly reservoir water, uh, which is secondhand rain collected water, but also water that they pull from essentially brown sources, so slightly recycled water. They're using that and using 49 million gallons, and that's if everything goes well. If they have a couple of hot days and it gets you know, above that freezing point, and then all of a sudden they have to replace that snow, and those numbers, if you get enough of those days, could really climb. So there's the use of water in the first place. The estimates provided by the Beijing Organizing Committee in their pre-game sustainability report suggest that it's between 4 to 10% of the available water in the region, oh, wow. depending on what mountain we're looking at, which is just a huge amount of water. 
So it's it's a pretty stark number, and they have it nicely buried pretty deeply in the report. Um, but there's reason to believe there's researchers in at the University of Strasbourg and, and some in uh, in China actually that have put out reports saying you know it could be a little higher than that depending on how the games go. Um, particularly getting into the Paralympic Games, where suddenly you know it's a month later, a little bit warmer. Uh, slightly less precipitation at that time. And so we obviously could see a little more reliance on snow at that point as well. On the back end, there's a big question around what happens when that much water melts? (laughs) Because this is a region that is adjacent to a natural reserve and 20,000 trees were felled to make room for some of these runs. They have moved those trees in most cases. The majority of them have taken a new location, which is great. But to move them from plot of land adjacent to a nature reserve is a bit questionable. Then you have what happens with all of that water when it melts. So if the temperature takes a really fast turn, we could see it melt quite quickly. And that could produce pretty devastating effects on the soils and plant life underneath. And it's very hard to say what exactly that will look like because most of the research on this has looked at situations where you have natural snow with some artificial snow mixed in. Sure, sure, sure. We haven't totally examined what it looks like when you have 100% artificial snow. So it is a bit of a test case. We know it's probably not good. Um, Most of the advanced research suggests that we could see some sediment erosion. We could see um, some plant life loss, which could obviously impact wildlife in the region. But we're not exactly sure what the scope of that will be because it's too early to tell. For a singular sports event, has there been anything kind of like this to go into a natural place and just disrupt it so largely? You can make an argument that some of the golf courses that exist in deserts are doing that. You could make an argument that any indoor ski facility, any surfing pool, any hockey rink in Florida, I mean, we, we've seen sports facilities go up in places that they don't necessarily belong climatically, and they've been sustained by human intervention and technologies. In some cases, there's been huge benefits from that. I don't want to knock the fact that golf courses can be a huge carbon sink in some areas, and that's great. Um, We've seen some golf courses become wildlife reserves in some corners of the course. But of course, the resource implications of putting sport facilities where they don't naturally belong Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is significant. And it's a question that we haven't really had to face on this big a scale before. Now, for your recent report, you spoke to a number of winter athletes participating in the Beijing Winter Olympics. Can you tell us why you wanted to speak to them and what they were telling you? Yeah. So we interviewed a number of athletes from different winter sports um, just to ask them about, do you have any concerns? How are you feeling about the artificial snow situation and the conditions in Beijing? And the response was very mixed, to be fair. We had a lot of athletes who are quite excited to be competing on artificial snow because it's fast and it's hard. And so for your downhill athletes who really just want to get after it on that mountain when they get to the top of the run, This can be a really, really fun way to get down a mountain on artificial snow. Um, However, for biathletes, for cross-country skiers, and for the aerial sport athletes who are expecting a bit of a softer surface when they fall and possibly just some nicer conditions to cut a truck through if you're on cross-country skis and if you're falling into if you're an aerial skier, for example, they're more concerned about the injury uh, implications of this. The challenge with injury implications is that the athletes have raised an alarm on this. The data doesn't necessarily bear that out yet. Part of why it's really hard to track injury data on artificial snow versus natural snow is 
the Federation of Skiing does not currently collect that piece of information when they put out injury reports on athletes. So this is going to be a bit of a test case. The athletes think it's going to be fun and fast on TV. It's going to look awesome. It's going to put on a show, but there could be some interesting implications. A harder surface when you fall on it has a risk of producing harder injuries. Why actually is artificial snow harder if you fall on it? Yeah, that's a great question. So artificial snow is about 70% ice. Natural snow by combination is about 30% ice and then air. So it just has a little more give to it. It's a softer surface to fall on. Um, It's softer to move. It gets out of the way a little easier. And it's less gritty on the bottom of your ski or your board. Okay. So climate change is, of course, lurking under this whole discussion. How is it going to affect the future of winter sports? Are people just going to have less access to snow? Yes. There will be less access to snow going forward. So since the 1960s, ski resorts have been increasingly reliant on artificial snow. There has been for a long time a bit of a 100-day rule in snow resorts where if you want to be viable from an economic standpoint, you need to be able to open about 100 days of the year. We're getting very tight on that 100 days, especially because in Europe, for example, The Snow and Avalanche Research Institute estimated that since 1970, we've lost about 12 days on the beginning of the season and 25 days on the end. So 40 days on the season is significant. Yep. Over the Northern Hemisphere, we've lost about 4 million square kilometers. Uh, It's about a 10% decrease in snow cover in the last four decades. According to a uh, study that came out a couple of years ago, Um, by the Rutgers Global Snow Lab. So to date, snowmaking has been the solution. And that's what we're seeing in Beijing. It's an extension of that adaptation that has been ongoing for a very long time. Moving into the future, we worry that if these trends continue, if in 40 years we lose another 10%, snowmaking may not be able to make that up. So with the Winter Olympics, the challenge becomes how do you find those snowshore locations that even if they don't have perfect, perfect conditions, they'll have enough that artificial snow is being used to supplement the conditions as opposed to artificially create the whole entire thing. So I guess the the big takeaway has to be there's a lot to save here. There's a lot of opportunity to save our mountains if we work on it right now. Is it a potential that we're going to have to adjust when and where the Winter Olympics are hosted in the future? Instead of holding the event at a time when snowfall is perhaps lower, you could account for climatological and meteorological conditions? Well, it's an interesting question because it doesn't, you know, sports schedules have changed in the past and we just saw it happen with COVID. Um, I think COVID in a lot of ways has stretched the imagination of the Olympic Committee in terms of what's possible in the sense that we've now seen two Olympic Games or we're about to see the second Olympic Games go ahead that won't have fans in the stands as a COVID protocol. Um, That shrinks the need for huge stadia. We could go to smaller mountain towns that have a smaller rink and a smaller facility. So that would be one part. The other question is around scheduling. We just saw them push the games by a year in Tokyo, um, given the timing of COVID. But in the future, I can see them saying, look, we're going to go to Argentina or Chile, and that's going to shift the calendar a little bit. Mm. Uh, Well, Maddie, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun. That was the sports ecologist, Maddie Orr. You can read more about the science of winter sports in a series of articles on theconversation.com. We'll put a link in the show notes.
Elsewhere on The Conversation this week, we've been covering a series of protests against COVID restrictions by truck drivers that rocked the Canadian capital, Ottawa. Here's Hayley Lewis. Hi, I'm Haley Lewis, Culture and Society Editor at The Conversation. I'm currently standing across from Parliament Hill in Ottawa's downtown, where earlier this week you wouldn't have been able to hear yourself think. On Monday, a day after the mayor declared a state of emergency, a judge ordered a 10-day injunction to stop almost two weeks of 12-hour honking. So that honking you just heard shouldn't happen right now. It should be giving the residents some much-needed peace. As someone who lives in the downtown core, I can tell you we're exhausted. The honking started because of a so-called freedom convoy of truckers and supporters who stormed the city to oppose COVID vaccine mandates. The convoy, however, has evolved into something much more sinister. As racist threats are being hurled at residents, Confederate flags are being waved, war memorials are being desecrated, shelter staff are being harassed, and businesses are being forced to close. Eli Sapo from University of Canada West dissects how Canada's Freedom Convoy was overtaken by a radical fringe. He says the shorthand to igniting a protest is fear, then anger, leadership and action, which makes a volatile brew of folks seeking leadership and visible action. That's when it all went wrong. Erica Chamberlain from Western University looks into the Ottawa police and potential liability. Many of the city's residents feel as though they have been failed by police and aren't being protected from the far right in their own city as occupation enters its 13th day. Chamberlain uses the $9.8 million class action lawsuit against the convoy seeking damages on behalf of downtown Ottawa residents as a jumping off point to discuss how the city's police force may also be liable. She concludes that Ottawa police could also be subject to allegations that their law enforcement practices are uneven and even discriminatory. We're publishing more stories daily if you'd like to keep up with what's going on in Ottawa. Search Freedom Convoy on theconversation.com. Thanks. Haley Lewis there in Ottawa. That's it for this week. Thank you to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And thanks to this long list of conversation editors who helped with this episode. Gregory Rico, Stephen Vass, Will DeFreitas, Brian Keogh, Jennifer Weeks, Jack Marley, Stephen Kahn, and to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for our free daily email. Just click the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. Or just tell your friends and family as well. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. I'm Dan Marino. Thank you for listening. <laughs>